Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please join me in welcoming back Professor David Clayton. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Um, nice to be back again. Thank you for the introduction and... Um, Thank you for the opening prayer, Father. Uh, I'm going to talk today about traditions in sacred art, focusing mainly on the figurative traditions. Uh, so I talked about the, what you might call the um, patterns, the patterned art of the sacred tradition and how it permeates all that we do in ways that we don't often expect it, or it can do potentially. I talked about this on um, Friday... Let's just um, go back to this emphasis on beauty again. Um, it's very difficult to define what art is. And we, um, we, I think I would say, use a very broad definition, just say art is anything that is done by man, anything that is made by man uh, as an artisan. Um, and the works of art that we're talking about here are paintings and sculpture predominantly. Um, so that's what I'm, when I use the word, that's what I'm thinking of. Uh, so good art is beautiful and it communicates truth. And that really is um, always the case. If there's anything that we think is ugly, we should reject it. Uh, we might argue about what is beautiful or what is ugly. We might have differences of opinion. But we should never willingly accept something that we don't think is beautiful. Um, and it communicates truth. Uh, now, it's that last part that I want to focus on today. We talked about beauty a little bit yesterday. I know you've had these uh, lectures on the transcendentals. We're going to talk about how a painting can be consistent with what is true. Um, does the content conform to truth? So the question is, does, what is it, it is actually showing represent something that is, is true? Uh, now, does the form reveal truth? Because it's possible to have something that where the content seems just right, but the style, by form, I mean not just what is painted, if you like, but how it is painted. Um, that can be consistent with what the artist is trying to communicate, or it can work against it. That will be a surprise to many people. Many people will feel... Uh, perhaps not in this audience, but generally would think that this is just a, a, a personal choice of the artist. It's up to them to express the way they feel personally that it ought to be done. Not so, I would suggest, and we're going to talk about that. Um, then you ask yourself, is it beautiful, and only then do I like it? Remember that we said that I like it is not equal, it is good. It's not that we remove the element of personal taste from the equation at all um, but even to ask those questions when we're looking at a work of art is at least introducing some principles of discernment um, we might argue at each stage 
as to how we answer these, and there, there may be differences of opinion, but it's a, it's a major um, advancement, I would say, to, to say that beauty is one of the criterions that we're interested in. And we, it, even if I think it's true in some way, and in content and form, but it's not beautiful, what it indicates is somewhere along the line, one of my judgments is wrong. There's a conflict here somewhere, so I need to be suspicious. Okay, so here is a painting that was done in 1910. Um, now, uh, this, uh, I think, I, as far as I know, I don't look at it in too much detail. The content here is true. That you know, here we have Christ on the cross. It, it's, uh, I'm sure we could analyse it. It may be contrary to the gospel, but I'm assuming that everything in terms of the content is fine. Um, but this is just the sort of painting that, in a way, started me off on the, the course that I've been on for the last 15 years or so. Um, because after I converted, I was converted, um, uh, as with many people, a number of things led to my conversion. But one was the beauty of the liturgy uh, in the Brompton Oratory, a church in London. Um, and seeing in this church, which doesn't have art that people are flocking to see, but nevertheless it has art which is in unity with the liturgy, and experiencing this um, mass where I could tell that all the art and the music and the liturgy, even the smells and the, the postures of the people, everything was in, in unity, in harmony, um, towards an end. So for just to give a little example, um, I heard the choir singing polyphony. I don't think I'd ever heard live polyphony before, and it, it was like a, I could hear the different voices, but it was as though it was a single voice. They were in a gallery somewhere towards the front of the church on the right, but I couldn't see where they were, and the, the singing just seemed to fill the atmosphere of the church. And I remember thinking, this... this this could be what angels sound like. And that thought actually just crossed my mind. And this is before I, I was a Catholic. I didn't even know this was a Catholic church. And I started to look around for the, the choir, and I looked up to see, thought maybe there's something up there, and I saw these angels flying across the ceiling of the church. And it struck me at that point that everything here was designed for, with this harmony in mind, that everything was pointing to and... Uh, coming out of, if you like, the, the liturgy and the Eucharist. Now, after I converted, I started to think about art. I had an interest in art. I thought I might like to be one. And I would see churches that would um, commission works of art that might be like this. You'd say that they are, it's figurative, it's not totally abstract, but in my taste it was ugly. It certainly wasn't something that I wanted to uh, pray to. And I would ask people, others, is it just me? And pretty much everybody I asked agreed with me. It, it, that, well, the way I describe it is if, if, you, if I went to a dinner party and you have your sort of standard eight people around the table, I don't know how you would organise it in the US, but in Britain you always seem to have eight people around a, a table at a dinner party. And you, the discussion of, about art comes up. There would be me strongly in favour of tradition, um, six people 
shrugging their shoulders and saying, well, I don't really understand it, and then one person strongly in favour of modern art, and the two of us would be at each other. And then if you push the other six, who are saying, well, I don't understand it, well, you don't need, I would say, you don't need to understand, just tell us what you feel, what you think. They all veer towards what we call high art, traditional art. There might be some variation. Um, but certainly, if you push them, on, generally, people are not looking at this sort of stuff. Now, um, if anybody's looking at this and saying, why is he saying this, you're probably not going to be with me for the rest of this lecture. Okay. Um, I don't know what else I can say. Um, but I began to ask the question, is this just a, a question of personal taste? Is, is there anything that's guiding artists in the past with regard to the style as well as the content that enables them to conform to something that is good and true and beautiful and whatever that means. Uh, I'm not quite sure at this stage. Um, and I started to investigate and I found that there was. So here you have a crucifixion by the uh, 17th century Spanish artist Velazquez and uh, this is uh, part of the Baroque tradition cited by Pope Benedict the 16th. He says there are three authentic liturgical traditions, the iconographic, the Gothic, and the Baroque, and he puts in brackets, at its best. <laughs> um, I would say this is the Baroque at its best. So here we have Velazquez painting Christ on the cross. Now, clearly, something very, very different going on here. Um, and if you look at the art of the period... People conformed to this. It wasn't identical, but there were similarities. And so this was my starting point. What, what is it that links what seems to be good, what seems to be in a tradition, to something that isn't? Okay. So here we have this. This is the key aspect. It's the idea of tradition, something that is handed on um, principles that are handed on in the case of art from one artist to the other um, that define how we paint and there are, as I mentioned there are three figurative I also include at the bottom a non-figurative geometric patterned art this is Christian abstract art in the sense that it's non-abstract just meaning the sense of non-figurative uh, again governed by a set of principles um, and we tend to flatter ourselves that in the West that we invented abstract art with figures such as Kandinsky or Mondrian in the 20th century. There was a geometric patterned art, and where especially Mondrian was trying to do everything that had already been done uh, centuries before and was discarded in about the time of the Enlightenment. Um, so I just want to make you aware that it's there. Now, the form of these traditions was created by a dialogue, I discovered, between liturgists, theologians, and philosophers of the church, and the artists. So, when John Paul II wrote his letter to artists, he described these, all these past traditions, he appealed to artists to start producing work that is beautiful for this new epiphany of beauty, remember that phrase, and... Um, he then said we need renewed dialogue between artists and the church. He didn't say, artists, go out and do it as best you can and express yourselves. He said we need renewed dialogue. In other words, 
This is informed by an understanding that the theology especially, um, our understanding of mankind, for example, um, as Christians, affects profoundly how we paint man. And we can't expect, no one expects an artist to, to know this instinctively or to know all of this. They need to be informed by those who know about this sort of thing. If I want to make art that is rooted in the liturgy, remember the liturgy is the source and summit, um, as the, I think, Sacrosanctum Concilium describes, of, of, of what it is to be human. Um, it defines what our ultimate goal is in heaven. It's, it's the, the supernatural step into, that, into uh, that heavenly state of partaking of the divine nature in the heavenly liturgy. It's also the source of grace in this life that allows us to get there. And we can be divinized by degrees in this life. So the liturgical art is vital and we need to be in dialogue with, with liturgists. And this is exactly what happens with these traditions. So this is a plea to artists. Don't invent your own style. Let tradition guide you. Um, if there is an existing form that fulfills or communicates the purpose you're looking for or communicates what you want to say, then just use it. Don't innovate unless you have to. Um, only change things, as I say, if there is a need to communicate something that the existing forms can't, um, as needed by the church. And the phrase that's often used is the hermeneutic of continuity. This says that you, you, you aim to strive not to change things and only change them if you have to. Um, and every tradition, even when working within the tradition, finds the need to reapply those principles in a way that speaks to people today. So even iconography, um, you can look at it with very, um, very clearly defined um, tradition. Um, and those who know about icons... Uh, I'm told, I don't know if I could quite do it, can look at a particular icon and identify it as coming from a particular geographical area and also from a particular period in time. Aidan Hart, my teacher, says to within 50 to 100 years, you can look at these styles. And they're all consistent with, we're talking about now art that is consistent with the core principles of the tradition. So new styles emerge, but clearly within the form, within the principles um, and that's really how we need to think, rather than trying to invent things ourselves. All right, so um, sometimes they talk about the icons in particular as the art of heaven, uh, the iconographic tradition. Uh, now, in order to understand what they're portraying, we need to consider that these are the three states of man as defined by John Paul II in his Theology of the Body. So original man is uh, Adam and Eve, man in general, man before the fall. And as far as I know, there's no artistic tradition ex expressly developed with that in mind. Um, John Paul II suggests that maybe we could do with one um, and if we're going to do that, we need to have that dialogue. We need to think, what does original man look like? And, for example, a starting point might be to start reading the hymns to paradise of Ephraim the Syrian, this was suggested to me, who describes um, original man. He didn't use that phrase, but he describes Adam and Eve. 
Um, so if, if we decide we need this, then that's where we go. Um, historical man is man is us, basically. Man after the fall, uh, with the potential for sanctity through, uh, through God's grace. Um, and the Baroque of the 17th century uh, was developed to describe that. So um, there's a legitimate reason for doing so, and we'll come to this uh, later, that, uh, that there was a particular reason why they wished to do that at the time. Um, and then third, you have um, what he calls eschatological man, uh, mankind redeemed in union with God in heaven, partaking of the divine nature. So that is an art which is revealing to us our heavenly destiny. And this is the iconographic. Now I have in brackets there the Gothic after two of those. And historically the, the Gothic came between the, in the West, as things started to change, between the iconographic, the, the Western iconographic forms, such as the, the Romanesque, and uh, the Baroque. Um, but in what the form of it, in some ways, spans the divide between the two. And um, I always think of it as almost being the art of, the, of pilgrimage, if you like, in this life, between um, historical man, fallen man, and then this journey through the life of the church, if you like, or life in the church, by degrees being sanctified, by conforming. How do we do this? It's by a life focused on, centred on the liturgy of the church. This is what we're about. The sacraments point us to that. Um, and by degrees, we can become eschatological man in this life, but not fully. We're not, into, we're not there fully. Um, but uh, we don't need to remain, shall we say, pure historical man. So here is just to remind you, um, here's a Gothic church, um, Notre Dame in Paris. And you can see that this is just uh, covered in geometric shape and proportion. Um, and we discussed a little bit, we touched on this on Friday. Um, all of it imbued with significance. And even geometric patterns that you see, um, these conform to an idea of sacred number, sacred proportion, um, and sometimes they're uh, numerical, it's a numerical language that we can read. Sometimes it is just linked to the fact that because we are made to intuitively see God, if you like, in his creation, see the, the the creator in his creation because these participate in some way in that beauty the idea is that we will intuitively pick that up it will attract us and open us up to God whether or not we understand the numerical symbolism right so we, don't worry we are going to see some pictures soon uh, in Christian figurative traditions the form, this is an important point, the form is always a balance between naturalism and idealism. So if I'm going to paint a man, it must look like a man. Um, I can't try and do what the abstract expressionists tried to do, which is to, to, to paint emotion separated from man. They're abstracting expression from man. In other words, they're removing the soul from the body. 
that contravenes the idea of the, the, the human person, uh, where we, un- we know what someone is thinking and feeling through the body. The two are profoundly united. And so if I want to paint a man, it must look like a man. But at the same time, I want to reveal invisible truths through the form. So to some degree, I have to idealize or partially abstract, if you like, change things, so that through the style of it, um, the observers, who are all going to be historical man, or fallen man to some degree or another, um, can understand, can pick up what the truths are. And this is, it's this partial abstraction that leads to the distinctive styles because it's how you change things from natural appearances that leads to us to be able to identify and distinguish between one tradition or another. And this is true also for secular modern art. Um, You could say that in conformity to truth there's an imbalance, but they understand full well that that you must change appearances, you must abstract in order to reveal what you want to say. Um, And they, they do it all the time. And the art schools push, the mainstream art schools push the secular ideologies and very clearly link what they do to it. Uh, and if, based upon the assumption, and it's, it's a wrong assumption that it's true, I think that they're quite rational and logical in the art that they produce. Um, so they understand this as well. Um, okay, so that's just a summary of what I said. Okay, so let's look at these three traditions. Now, um, I'm not going to talk at length about icons and how the form is governed by the theology because this is one area in which there is a lot of information available and I I wouldn't be surprised if you you haven't had a talk already or you will soon because there are plenty of people who talk about this. Um, But... First of all, can I take it that most people here, when I talk about icons, even if they can't define exactly what it is, they would see that and recognize that as an icon and they know roughly what I'm talking about. I thought that would be the case. So um, here we have an icon of the Transfiguration. Uh, There's a great book uh, by someone called, I think it's called Jean Corbon, called The Wellspring of Worship which he talks about the transfiguration icon. And he says that this uh, is very important because it reveals to us how, as really what our mission in life is. That as uh, Christians, we participate, we are part of the mystical body of Christ. And this transfiguration is uh, an anticipation of uh, Christ in heaven, the sight of Christ in heaven. But also, because uh, the church is the mystical body of Christ, our participation in the liturgy of the church allows us by degrees to, be, to participate in that transfiguration. We are transformed, transfigured as well. And what he says is that that is the means by which we will evangelize. When we go out into the world, it is the fact that we shine with the light of Christ that will attract people to what we do. So, as well as all the information and all the, uh, about the, the culture, are, it's, it's the way we do things as much as anything else that will pull people in, in every 
everyday life, just as we heard just now. That it's, it's the ordinary things that we do. And at root, this is about personal transformation um, through the liturgy. And, and he says this, is, this icon is telling us this. So very important, I think, for us to focus on our end point, our destination, if we're going to be able to do that. Um, so just to give you some quick examples, as I'm not going to go into detail, the fact that, for example, this is revealing mankind in the heavenly dimension uh, means that everyone is shining with the uncreated light. The assumption is that as Christ was transfigured, so will we be in union with God. Uh, Therefore, if I'm shining with light, there will be no cast shadow, so you don't get cast shadows. You'll notice that when you see faces, we'll see one in a second also, that unlike a naturalistic portrait where you have a glint on the eye, it's very important to anyone to portrait painting. You've got to get that right because it indicates even how healthy somebody is, how shiny, how large you make that little white dot um, because it gives an indication of the moistness of the eyes, all this sort of thing. That Icons don't show that because that is reflected light, the, the glint. And the icon is a source of light, the person in an icon. Um, and so it's consistent with that idea. Um, even the halo is a symbol of sanctity, of holiness, but is really a stylized uh, pictorial representation of, again, the light, the trans- light of the uncreated light of uh, divinity shining out of the saints. And then the other thing is the, the flatness of it. Uh, the, the whole design is done deliberately to try and eliminate a sense of depth and space because the heavenly realm is outside time and space. It is, it's another sort of existence. It's as though all places are simultaneously in one place and all time, past and future, simultaneously compressed into a single moment. So I'm told. I'm not an expert, and I don't know if I can imagine it, but I, I'm, what that would be like. But uh, it's a very different sort of um, being, existence. So here you have... Uh, I did this one. This is Our Lady and Our Lord, of course. Um, and you see no glint on the eyes. Also, with the... Uh, eyes of purity Um, when in the the heavenly state not only do do we shall we say appear different we're shining with this light but our ability to see and perceive and apprehend the truth of what is around us is different because of our our purity and so um, I was always told that the eyes of saints in icons are always enlarged because they take in Information. They always act with economy of effort and great effectiveness, but they always think uh, and act wisely before they act, so that those organs that take in information are slightly enlarged. Those that uh, act are always reduced slightly, the mouth especially. Um, I think I'll just leave it at that. I don't want to go into too much detail. There are lots of books on icons. Um, this is St. Luke. And you even have reverse perspective. Inverse perspective. 
So things getting wider um, as they go further away from you, um, or sometimes parallel, which is contrary to the idea of single point perspective. And what this does is just, again, destroy this illusion of space. It's a deliberate um, thing that is done. Um, but it, we still have to be able to read it and see what it is. If it's so distorted that we can't tell that St. Luke is sitting on a chair and there's this is in front of him with the script from which he's writing, then it doesn't work. We need to be able to create a sense of local depth so that we know that this leg is in front of this one. So you're always... There's this dynamic between the stylization and the invisible truths you're trying to communicate and the natural appearances, which we must... We need in order to discern what is there, as uh, the, the observers here on Earth, so to speak. Okay. Now, this is a, a Russian icon from, I think, the, the early 19th century. And the, in Russia, certainly, although uh, there was no Renaissance... Uh, to speak of, but it was affected by the Enlightenment and it affected art there too. So you start to get the iconographic tradition, uh, the, the phrase that my teacher uses, you get degenerate forms. So what you have here is the, uh, it's done in oil, which is too three-dimensional, too sensuous. The, the media that are used in icons are deliberately chosen because they look flat on the surface. Everything seems to live so to speak, on the surface, the plane of the painting, rather than creating an illusion of depth. This is done in oil, uh, which is, does the opposite. There is a landscape there, there's a sense of perspective, um, and also even the, a sky and a landscape. And um, so what, what you have historically is um, in the West... All art up to about 1200, even all the styles that you think of, um, Caroling, those who are art history people will recognize phrases such as Artonian art, um, Carolingian art, Celtic art that we know, um, the, up to the Romanesque. So something like 1130, know, there's no clear division. All of this conformed to the iconographic prototype. The, these, these were local variations that in the figurative art were consistent with um, the iconographic prototype, that art which is trying to reveal eschatological man to us, or to show us, shall we say, our heavenly destiny, our heavenly goal. Um, in the West, it changed uh, to the Gothic, and then by the 17th century you had the Baroque, and then in the West we were affected by the Enlightenment and things started to go bad, around the 19th century artistically uh, you start to see deviation from what you might call Christian forms um, in the east uh, this was affected around the same period by the enlightenment what happened is that um, around the uh, most, if, I don't know who's, if anybody here has been to an icon painting class but um, classes today are as a result of work that was done by, particularly by uh, expatriate Russians living in Paris in the middle of the 20th century who sat down 
and looked at what they felt were authentic icons and did an analysis of them. They looked at the form, so they clearly they, they just decided what they felt were the authentic tradition, and they worked out a theology that seemed consistent with the form that they saw. And um, all the things that you hear, some may have come down by word of mouth. From I'm sure the line wasn't broken. But, for example, um, a lot of the things that I heard in icon painting classes, they're, they're not written by church fathers. They come out actually out of this analysis that was done in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, now, I think it was a very, very good analysis because the result of what they've done, it has, they've re-established this as a living tradition. There are generations now of icon painters who come out of them um, and who are producing work that is consistent with this tradition um, and they have a strong sense of where they can move within those bounds and you're getting um, also individual expressions but in the right sort of way emerging. So it's a very, very healthy situation. Um, What we need to do in the West is start doing the same sort of analysis and what you're going to hear me are the first attempts, if you like, to do the same for the Gothic and the, um, the Baroque. Now, it's, in, it's interesting to note that this analysis that was done was done by um, Orthodox Russians who were prejudiced to some degree against Western art forms. And so it seemed the way that I would characterize it, what I heard was very, very good when they talk about icons. But when contrasted with Western traditions, um, it's, it's not always worth listening. Their analysis of other art was not always worth listening to. It, it's, it's deliberately presented so as to mitigate against um, Western art. Some of it needs to be discarded, I would say, but not those authentic traditions of the Gothic and the Baroque. So you need to be aware of that. Um, when you read most of the books you get on icons now are representing that analysis. Um, what unites art worthy of veneration um, that sit within these traditions are two things by tradition. One is that the saint bears, or the person uh, as the image bears the characteristics of the person portrayed. Um, now this means some sort of likeness but as much the things that you use to identify that person even if we don't have a a portrait like likeness Uh, and the other thing is the presence of the name on the icon these are the things that make it worthy of veneration and in authentic uh, liturgical art you'll see both of these things manifested in different ways Um, I'm just going to tell you one story actually about uh, just to illustrate this, first of all, uh, the, initially these, the, there were lots of rules about icons that came. And when I, I met Aidan Hart, my teacher, who is uh, Eastern Orthodox, um, something like 20 years ago, and I went to him. I wanted to learn how to do icon painting. I went to him with a textbook that I'd found, which was a, a reprint and a translation of something written by an Italian called Cennino Cennini, in, I think, the 15th century, uh, or maybe the 14th century. And it showed a particular method of painting where you do a line drawing, you do a monochrome underpainting, in other words, a black and white version, if you like, and then you do layers of paint over it. And I showed this to my teacher, and he said, no, 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 
this contravenes the theology of icons because you have to start with a dark base and the light comes out of it. You can't put the black on initially. Um, there's a theology in the, in the, methodology, in the method itself. Um, now, I must admit, I was puzzled by this. I thought, well, if you can't tell with the end product, isn't the, an image what you see at the end? I mean, does it matter what went into it in the first place? Um, but I accepted what he said. Um, and this is what I, and then I'd hear this repeated in lots of icon classes. And then, something like five or six years ago, a book came out, published in Russia, and was then translated into English, where they'd done x-ray analysis on centuries of icons. And what they discovered was that the older method was the method that was actually had been retained in the West and was described by Cinino Cinini. The new method was the one that um, I'd been described as corresponding to the theology of the dark, his dark layer and then gradually putting the light highlights on. And I know that this, uh, I knew about this because I have to say fair play to Aidan, he phoned me up and said, I've just read this, um, and I have to take back what I said. He said, in the end, I realized that the image at the end is the important thing. Um, and steadily, and he said, from now on, I'm going to use the Cinino Cinini method because I can produce them more quickly and better. Um, <laughs> and, and he said, and gradually over the years, he said that, for example, color symbolism. He said, as soon as you try and set down some rules for color symbolism, you'll find something that contradicts it. And so he says, generally, it's not that color is unimportant, but they're, they're developed to speak to the, the local culture, if you like. There's more local variation. But there are no hard and fast rules. And um, So it's probably a little broader than most of us imagine. Um, but that's not to say that there aren't clear principles. Okay, so what happened in the West... After about 1100 or something, there's a, a steadily increasing appreciation of the value of the natural world and our ability to perceive it with our senses. Um, and this is due in part to the combined effect of the incorporation of the philosophy of Aristotle into Christian thinking with figures such as Bonaventure and Thomas Aquinas, Albert the Great, you may have heard of these names, um, incorporating this into Christian thinking and the influence of the spirituality of Francis of Assisi. So what happened is that through contact with, for example, the, I think the libraries of the Islamic lands that were being reconquered uh, in Toledo in Spain, for example, um, also contact with the East through the Crusades, I think, um, there was a rediscovery of the works of the, the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle. Um, and gradually it was translated and then in the light of the Gospels was assessed for truth by these figures. Um, and the great change was this, um, it's not a, a total transformation, just an, an increased emphasis on the value of information, of the information gained through the senses of the world around us. Um, and the, the, uh, our ability, although we're fallen, um, we can still perceive something that is useful and good about the information around us. Um, and that the world itself, the, the estimation of the value of the world around us now changed in, in part. Again, it's, it's a subtle shift of emphasis, not night and day or a sudden 
change. So there may be suffering, there may be evil, but it is still good nevertheless and points in some way to what it ought to be. And so there's just a focus on that relatively as a result of this in the West. Now this affected art and gave rise to an interest in the world around us um, and also to the beginning of scientific the, the development of the scientific method and scientific investigation. Um, now, I mentioned those figures uh, such as Aquinas and Bonaventure. Um, they did, if you like, the academic work, the intellectual work, but that doesn't allow it subsequently to permeate necessarily through into the, the way that people thought naturally. And so much of that was done by the influence of the spirituality of St. Francis of Assisi, who just loved nature. Um, but he, the great thing about him is he had it in its right place. He was an ascetic who understood that it, it couldn't be placed too high. Uh, there's a value to the body, but it's not the, the, the ultimate uh, thing that we appreciate. Um, and so... Uh, that popularized, if you like, these ideas. And uh, you may be aware that a lot of the early artists in the Gothic period and also scientists in Oxford, for example, were Franciscan friars or third-order Franciscans. Okay, so that's just really a repeat what I've said. Um, now, Gothic art, therefore, I'm talking about figurative art, is a greater naturalism, but it's grafted onto a Byzantine substrate. What do I mean? If you want to paint in a particular style, um, if you want to paint at all, there are, traditionally there are two aspects to the training. One is the observation of nature. Um, so if I want to paint um, superheroes in the style of Superman and Batman and Spider-Man, um, one thing I do is go and do some life drawing to get a sense of what the human form looks like, uh, the, the thing that I'm actually drawing. The other thing I do is, work, is learn the, the, or copy and study the works of masters in that tradition. So I buy a huge pile of Marvel comics and I just copy Spider-Man um, endlessly and then pretty soon what will happen is every figure that I draw will naturally be in the style of these um, bulging muscular figures at strange angles, you know, rotated in any way. That is how you do it. And that's true in any tradition. If I want to st work in the iconographic tradition, there's not so much emphasis on life drawing, but certainly we have to observe people around us when people we've talked about drawing the face for example we referred the features on the painting that we were studying to what you know we were invited to feel uh, you know for example the fact that the, the nose comes down there's bone and then cartilage here and it pinches in so it broadens it thins and then it widens again at the end and this is what you see in the face of the icon and it's reflecting what exists in us in nature the anatomy um, so it's always a, a balance between the two. The Gothic artists, their old masters, if you like, were the, the iconographic art of the Romanesque that had existed there before. And all that happened is you get an increased emphasis on the natural appearances. They started to study nature. And so gradually you get a fusing of one with the other. 
Initially, there were subtle changes. So one thing that you know, this is a late Gothic. This is Fra Angelico, 15th century, Florentine, Dominican. Um, but in many ways, this figure, these figures, are similar to the iconographic. They're painted in the middle distance. There's this sense of distance between us and them, which draws us in. Um, the sharp lines and detail painted there. So as we approach it, it reveals more and more detail. Um, and, but there are other things that are different. That figure is in profile. In an icon, you would never get a figure in profile. Uh, always they're either three-quarter or full. You can see both eyes. The reason for that, uh, the devil would be in profile, incidentally, but for a saint... Uh, is that a saint wishes to reveal his whole person to you. It signifies also that when we look at someone, uh, if I can speak it in that way as though it's just a time and a place, but when we look at someone, our intellect can grasp fully who they are or look at an object, what it is. Uh, everything is present to us. That's also a reason why, incidentally, you paint the backs of things tipped up. It's, it's as though you, I can look at that and I know what's there as well. That's, that's a way of symbolising that. Now, in the, this only partially divinised state, if you like, uh, on this pilgrimage to heaven, climbing up the Gothic spire with its feet firmly planted on the ground, pointing upwards, um, what we have is some elements of the natural and some elements of the heavenly. We do have cast shadow here. Uh, of course, we have the historical detail of St. Dominic there, who was present at the Annunciation, in case any of you are aware of that. Um, and we have a, a, a perspective and cast shadows. But we also have, if this is the source of light from the left here, we'd expect that face to be in shadow, wouldn't we? But it isn't. Okay? St. Dominic's is but not the angel. Okay? Um, now, somebody once asked me, this is an interesting little aside, somebody once asked me, well, if that's the case, and the angel is shining with light, and for, what Fra Angelico is doing here, he's manipulating, he's using elements of the iconographic, elements of the naturalistic, to show these two worlds at once, in a way. Um, someone said, well, what, how come you have a shadow behind Mary uh, and I have to say I was rather ooh, I don't know, I mean it might be an accident maybe didn't think about it but that's probably not for Fra Angelica so I, I gave some explanation that well you have two light sources here, you have the angel well even three of Saint Dominic as a source of light pushing light in this direction Mary is just one light source, she can't compete so you get a bit of a cast shadow I don't think even I was convinced by that as I said it uh, but it's all I could think of, I wasn't sure. And the person who asked me said, well, do you think that Fra Angelica was, was making a point? Um, because it was before, remember, that the Immaculate Conception was dogmatically defined. Fra Angelica was a Dominican. The Dominicans did, argued against it. And it was the Franciscans who were asserting that. Of course, the Dominicans, I don't know if you ever had... Uh, talks by Dominicans, they always take digs at the Franciscans or the Benedictines, and those three, they're always taking little jokey potshots. That, that rivalry goes back. 
And he said, do you think that maybe Fra Angelico is making a point about the Immaculate Conception and arguing against it by putting that shadow there? I don't know. So even this, this is Jan van Eyck. It's the Flemish artist from the 15th century. Um, And Adam and Eve have fallen, and they're in deep shadow. Here you have the Eucharist represented here, the Supper of the Lamb, um, shining with light, very li- no cast shadow, or very little, except, of course, from the ultimate light. Here, rising in the east, everything is oriented, orientated towards the Orient, the east, everyone facing in that direction. Um, and even though this is highly naturalistic, there is still that sense of distance, uh, everything's in the middle distance. They, they, at, at root, there's a strong sense of that um, something iconographic there. Uh, it's, it's, it's derived from us. You get a sense of just a greater naturalism fused onto this Byzantine substrate. Um, and so this is more naturalistic again than Fra Angelico, but we can see that, that it's still linked to it in some way. Now, something suddenly happened in the West to cause a huge change in style. So up to this point, what you had is a a change, um, but by the artists aware of what they're doing, thinking about the tradition that this is coming out of, playing around with light and shade and perspective, as though they're somewhere on this pilgrimage from uh, here to heaven, if you like, by degrees... Um, following that liturgical path to heaven. Um, Suddenly, you get a whole change in style. And uh, what caused this is not, and I'm talking now about the High Renaissance, is not increased naturalism. That had already been going on for 300 years or something like that, the observation of nature. What changed were the old masters that they, they copied, uh, that is the major influence on style, is the, the, the works of old masters that you copy. Instead of looking at Gothic masters or Romanesque masters, deliberately in their training, they changed to copying Greek and Roman statues. And that affected, therefore, their style profoundly. Um, and... Why did they do this? Well, they were digging them up in Greece and Rome. They were discovering them. They were enamoured with classical culture. Um, there was contact with, again, with, uh, there was a focus on uh, classical texts. And uh, really, all I can say is they just thought they were so beautiful, they just said, right, we're going to copy that. Uh, I can find no theological imperative for this dislocation in style. There's, in other words, There's no reason why they had to do it, I I don't think. You might argue that when they discovered these Greek and Roman statues, they saw something that was so naturalistic that they thought, this is consistent with what we're trying to do, it's better than we're able to do, let's use that. Okay, That's legitimate. Um, What I'd say is that I'm not aware of any theological bar either. I don't don't think you could look at those statues and say there's something that is bad for us to copy there. Um, although my personal view is I wish that it had never happened but anyway, there you go 
So here you have a statue from 500 BC. Um, things to notice. I'm just going to pick out uh, the, just the facial features. It's a sort of composite face that represented the, the, the perfection of beauty for the ancient Greeks. Uh, and you see it, all the, it's as though all the gods have that, have that face. And then also that pose, which is a way they developed with that, the heel rising. They, they allows, it allows the weight of the statue to be transmitted downwards. Um, and on that, this foot here, um, and it gives a sense of motion but without making the statue unstable. You can imagine if you paint somebody sort of in full flight running on one toe, even if you get it perfect, it's, it, it's unstable, it's going to fall. And, and that's how we move, is gravity pulls us forward to a large degree. Um, and the same would happen to the statue. So this is the way that they worked out a, a, a pose that is stable, uh, will stand up, but gives a sense of motion. It's just about to step off. This is a statue by Michelangelo, done 2,000 years later. Um, and you see the facial features. They're deliberately looking at that. Uh, this is very different from a Gothic style, and he has the same pose. And they deliberately set out to copy and uh, all the drawings that, that became part of the standard technique of learning to draw was copying plaster casts of these statues relentlessly. This is a painting by Raphael around the same period, around 1500s. It's in the National Museum in Washington, D.C., actually. Um, and this is Our Lady with John the Baptist and Our Lord. And even the face here is based upon that Greek ideal. And there are accounts of Raphael uh, saying that, that he said, there is no woman who is beautiful enough for me. I have to take features from this one and features from this one, and together I produce something that is worthy of my, of my art. Um, and what he's doing, he's, he's describing exactly the uh, tradition as to how the Greek artists produced this ideal image. They talked about their accounts of how they used to do this. Um, in order to get an idea of what that might be like, he had to work from the statues. I don't know if there's any Greek painting extant. There is, there's very, very little. Um, so we, just ha we have accounts of how naturalistic it was, how good it was. But they're using those statues as a basis for it. Okay. And we can see a very, very different look, strong, uh, accompanied with a very, very strong sense of space. We have a landscape, very naturalistic. They now switch to oil. Um, in order to portray this. Um, and uh, you have uh, other figures such as Leonardo doing the same sort of thing. And then Titian, who started off in the early 16th century, he has had a long, long life. Um, and he steadily developed this. Okay, now these figures were great innovators. But there was no real theology worked out to link this to any other aspect of man other than what you might call naturalistic. Uh, individual artists would think about it. Michelangelo was a deep thinker. Um, but it's not as if his ideas just pervaded everybody. You had individuals working out what to do, trying to think about it. Um, and so at this stage, they're pioneers of a tradition. And this is why the High Renaissance is not 
listed by Pope Benedict as one of the authentic liturgical traditions. Um, the Baroque of the 17th century is. Um, so, this was the art of the Catholic Counter-Reformation, and under the direction of figures such as Charles Borromeo, who really thought about how all these elements that were being developed in the High Renaissance uh, came together, uh, they brought together these innovations into a single form which became the Baroque. So this was right at the end of the 16th century, the late 1500s. And the first person who did this, uh, following these ideas, was Caravaggio. Um, I put it in brackets here because he, he, it's as though he ushered in the Baroque. Um, now, I'm, I haven't got a picture by him, but you, you know, I'm assuming you know the art of Caravaggio, this deep... For example, he is the one who invented this uh, visual language of light and dark, where the shadow represents evil and suffering, the light is contrasted with it, and the light overcomes the darkness um, and offers hope. And just as uh, all hope transcends and overcomes suffering in the Christian message. Okay. Now... The aim of Baroque art is to instruct and inspire the faithful to love God and mankind. Sometimes it's suggested with Western art, this is all, all it does is instruct. It's, it's just didactic. Um, not so in these all of these traditions. Uh, certainly, though, it is part of it. Um, it's, and then the, with the Baroque, the aim is to reveal God's presence here on earth in a sinful world to encourage us, to give us hope. Uh, to give us a sense that God is here with us and therefore can raise us up to heaven. Um, and in one sense, it is... So we're going to analyse one now. It is complementary to the iconographic. The iconographic shows where we're going to. The Baroque, in the way that we're going to describe in a second, shows us where we are. And the Gothic encourages us to believe that we can set off on that journey here and now. So, here we have a painting by Velazquez, uh, the one we, we saw earlier. If anyone's ever seen this, it's in the Prado. It just looks, it, it jumps out at you. It looks as though every detail is there. And then what happens is that you go up to it and it just disappears into a mass of brush strokes. It's amazing how broad brush it is. Now, I don't know if any of you ever had that experience with an old master in an art gallery where you see it, you think, this is, a, this is incredible, I want to get closer. It just goes out of focus somehow, and so it forces you back, and then it pops into focus again. Okay? Um, this is the loincloth. It's amazing how rough the whole thing is. Um, now, what's going on here? The method that is used here to draw this is very deliberate. So I'm going to, you have to imagine now me doing a cast drawing in the academy in Florence where I studied, which used the same method as Velazquez. I put the cast here, I put my easel here, and I march back to a point on the floor here. And I look at the two, and I start off with a piece of string, measure the height of the top of the head, look at my piece of paper, fix my eyes on it, walk forward, and mark. 
Then I come back and I check whether it's right. Usually it isn't. It can be an inch off or something. So I then say, OK, I've got to move down a little bit. So I move forward. And gradually I build up the whole picture, drawing from memory here what I saw there. OK. Um, this means that the whole thing is in focus here. Don't go forward and sort of look at this and that, that ruins it. I have to draw from me- a short-term memory. Um, so what happens is that in contrast to um, the iconographic, which draws you in, it's in the middle distance the whole time, so you just want to get closer. And it's always in the middle distance because the angle of vision doesn't change. Um, and it reveals more detail, almost to the point of... Then, at a certain point, you can't get any closer, and it takes your attention up to, up to heaven, the, the, the saint in heaven. I go beyond the image. In that way, it's a doorway to heaven. It creates this um, link through the imagination, directed by the image, to the real person in heaven. Um, what this does, if I try and get closer, it says, you stay where you are, I'm coming out to you. It's the opposite dynamic. I am with you now. It's designed to have an impact at a distance. And when I described this to somebody uh, at the Maryvale Institute, she said, well, this is just like Jacob's ladder. You have two ladders. One, the angels are coming down. The other angels are going up. And they're complementary to each other. Okay. This is the penitent uh, Magdalene by great French artists from the same period, Uh, Georges de la Tour and I just want to talk about one other thing here, I'm going to go over time a bit I really, but um, notice first of all how little colour there is, the naturalistic colour is just in this area and also how so much of it is out of focus, it's blurred you can't see a clean edge between there and there that edge is blurred Okay, now the, we, I could I could spend lecture after lecture going into this in detail. This is a delib- This is done deliberately by the artist. It's controlled by the artist. The assumption right at the root of this. Remember this idea that the cosmos. I talked about this on Friday. Is made for us. We. It's made for man, so that man can observe it, and through looking at it see the, the mark of the creator it raises our souls to God and so they started to think just as I described on Friday how do we perceive that beauty how do we look if I look at a scene just think about the way you've been looking at me for example um, everybody has an angle of focus which is about 15 degrees so that means that you can't see the whole of me very easily you tend to especially of those who are close to you tend to spend most of your time looking here okay now just to make sure that i'm not a floating head occasionally you do do cursory glances up and down if i do that suddenly that'll catch your eye and you see my hand okay at any point though um what you what is on the the retina of your eye is an image which in the centre is coloured and sharp and in focus to about 15 degrees and those, that's the area where the um, cones I think it is, particular sorts of uh, cells are 
Everything, all the information around that is monochrome, it's just tonal information, and um, it is blurred. That's not what we see in our mind's eye. What happens is the bre- that information is fed to the brain. The brain says, well, actually, although that's the, the image I'm getting, um, I know what the rest of you are, what, the re- what goes here, what's the missing information, because I looked at the rest of you earlier on. I have in my memory things that I, when I saw you before. And so the picture we see is a natural image. Um, And what tends to happen if we look at any scene is we focus on certain areas which are of primary interest, usually conforming to the hierarchy of being, and there might be two or three, and all the rest of the information, the rest of the time when we're not looking at that, the memory is supplying information, what we see in our mind's eye. Illusionists make use of that by tricking the mind into supplying information uh, which isn't there, because if, if, if we haven't seen something, the brain says, well, I, ha- I don't know what's there, but I know what something like this normally looks like. I've seen a head before, and usually it has a neck and shoulders and arms, so I'm going to supply one. And that's what we see. And then illusionists will, you know, will trick you like this. Now, these are not illusionists. They're trying to reveal truth, but they make us respond in the same way. They draw our attention to the primary point of interest where the contrast is greatest, where the light is greatest, they give us most information. And they keep us away from these areas and let the brain supply that information. And the the reasoning behind this is they want us to respond to this in the same way we respond to the natural world, so that our thoughts go beyond it to the creator. In other words, it's participating by inducing that reaction in us, in the beauty of of the cosmos, and the idea being that it it causes that same reaction in us. Okay. Now, um, as you can imagine, I could talk at length about all of these, and then also the mundane art, which comes out of these, particularly the Baroque, you get landscapes, portraits, that all owe their style to that sacred art and that just dominated the West because of its power and its beauty. Um, Now, here we have a statement in Mediata Dei by Pius XII. And just like the church's statements on music, where where they they direct towards certain styles, they never close the door altogether to innovation and things new. Recent works of art which lend themselves to the materials of modern composition should not be universally despised. Um, and despite everything I said, I would agree with that, um, and rejected through prejudice. Um, modern art should be given free scope in the due and reverent service of the church and the sacred rites, provided, that's my underlining, that they preserve the correct balance between styles tending neither to extreme realism or excessive symbolism, and that the needs of the Christian community are taken into consideration rather than the particular taste or talent of the individual artist. He has said in a a paragraph, well, I spent an hour and whatever, over an hour now, sorry, um, actually communicating. Um, It's a balance between naturalism and abstraction. It's the need that defines whether you do anything new or not. Um, And... 
But nevertheless, we should not reject things out of hand simply because they're new. What this does say to me is that we should not adapt the form of secular culture, which is derived from an anti-Catholic worldview, into sacred art, which is that very first slide. That's what that was doing. That was um, early 20th century expressionism, which came out of a secular worldview, post-Enlightenment worldview, and those forms do not correspond to what Pius XII, did I say the 10th, only Pius XII, said. So we must be discerning. We don't want to be prejudiced, but we do want to be, make judgments that are good once we've looked at the, the styles. Um, and if we get this wrong, that is an electionary that was recently produced in Italy, sadly. Okay. We always need to look to tradition, and with that, I will, I will close. So thank you very much. Can you explain what Pope Benedict XVI meant by the word verticality and its importance on Catholic art, architecture, and the liturgy? No, precisely. I hear this used a lot, the vertical and the horizontal. Um, I think what is meant by the horizontal is this emphasis on community of people um, and an overemphasis on the horizontal in liturgy is at the expense of uh, the uh, the heavenly, if you like, going beyond this world. So um, when people say that both should be there, I mean the emphasis needs to be on taking our minds up to, up to God. And there's a strong sense, I think, that recently that that has not been going on and that everybody's just emphasising a, 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 the horizontal, which is a community of people. Um, maybe there's something more sophisticated than that, but I don't, I don't, I don't know if, if there is. So that's the best answer I can give. Hi, thank you for your talk. Um, I had a question earlier on in the, in the presentation. You discussed how art is objectively um, true or beautiful. And it's not necessarily a subjective thing that people just say, oh, I like this, I like that. But you can actually say that some art is, objectively speaking, superior and more beautiful to other art. And the Pope had highlighted Baroque and Gothic as primary examples of that, as, as demonstrations of true beauty. How do you go about explaining to people how some art is, objectively speaking, more true and communicates more truth and beauty than, than others? Well, you... Um the fact that it's that that is so, that we can say that something is objectively beautiful, doesn't mean that it's easy for us to uh, d discern that. So it doesn't mean there is no room for difference of opinion. There may be differences of opinion, but that depends on our ability to uh, to perceive it. So. I might look at something, you might look at something, and even asking those questions. I mean, the, the first point I want to make is that regardless of how we answer, let's at least ask those questions. In my opinion, is it true? In my opinion, is it beautiful? Um, but all I'm saying is that there are traditions that exist within the church that, are, that give us some guidelines, and we rely, if you like, on consensus for those. So, um, and then where's the Pope getting that from? I think probably he's giving 
us his personal opinion and we have to say do we trust his, his judgment so and I was I would uh, my judgment should we say my taste coincides with his so I say yes <laughs> we do um, but you can never escape it, it's not a rigid um, set of guidelines in which you can object you know you can look at something tick boxes and say that is beautiful that is true that is good we know that something that is good has all those things but in the end the strongest guideline you have is actually consensus over an extended period and that's what a tradition is uh, beyond that in, and if I was choosing something for a church I would be very conservative because I don't want to take chances in my home I might pick something that you know okay it was painted by um, somebody in the 20th century doesn't correspond precisely but in my opinion it seems to nourish my prayer I might perhaps choose it um, so in different situations personal taste has a greater influence um, but it's that's really the value of tradition you try and ascertain what people have done over an extended period uh, and that gives you the greatest guideline you can just touching on the point that you made at the very end about um, that you you choose the the form that is um, that fits our tradition rather than one from a secular worldview that's anti-Catholic, for example. I just wonder what you think about the possibility of redeeming a form that began as a secular form and drawing it into a Catholic culture. It's possible, but you have to do it discerningly. The, the, the problem with most of the attempts to do what you're describing is the only criterion that people use in choosing secular forms are, is it popular? And the assumption is that if it's popular there and I add Christian content to it, it'll be popular here and therefore it'll pull people into the church. That's not sufficient, is what I would say. It, it's the, the, the church has always looked at external forms and drawn them in and redeem them after all that's exactly what happened with all her first art it was really taken from the classical forms so you can do that discerningly even with secular modern art but it has to be done in an understanding in order to do that we have to know our own traditions thoroughly i would suggest uh, I would like to mention or put a plug in for the Faith and Life series, Teaching CCD. It has a, the, the books um, for Teaching CCD have beautiful art. And they're like, you know, Titian or Angelico or whoever. However, our <laughs> there are many publications that have modern art for children. For, for instance, the Way of the Cross that we have in our parish and some other things that are, mm, there our former text was just um, pictures that the children themselves could draw. Okay. <laughs> so our, can, I just, our text, can I just stop you there? Just, is there a, can you just t say what your question is? Yeah, at the, the end question of this? Yeah. is, is there any hope for uh, promoting this type of like Faith and Life series or promoting... Uh, better art for children? Well, there's, there's always hope. Um, the, the, uh, the, I mean, this is why we have these... Um, the hope is that maybe somebody here is, runs a publishing company and will choose things and show an interest. Um, but 
Uh, it is important what we show to, to young people, I think. Yeah. In your first lecture, you showed us ratios with notes, music. Can that be done with a spectrogram regarding color? <laughs> um, perhaps. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't see why not. Um, the, the thing uh, about colors is I think into artists intuitively use color thinking about the psychological impact it has. So that's putting colour symbolism aside. So th- people, they, you know, the language is a warm colour, cool colours, this sort of thing. Um, and, but I, I, don't see, I don't see why it shouldn't. The, the thing I would say, though, is that in figurative art, for example, um, you, it has to be simple. You can't use complex proportions um, and then try and fit a figurative piece to it. It looks forced, it looks sterile. Uh, what, what I was told to do in using proportions is I just have... Uh, Aidan would tell me to divide things up into thirds and quarters, and then you have a grid, and then, he, and then also the external dimensions. You can think about that and put them in uh, proportion. Um, and he said, do your best to place compositional highlights on those points and he said because the eye they're like resonant points the eye naturally comes to rest within them within the dimensions of it but at the end of it you do your best you normally can't do it perfectly otherwise you'd end up with an elbow here and a hand there and you know it just doesn't look so at the end of it all these are guidelines to help you to move towards an ideal but you have to look at it and say does it look right does it and so in the end you're always adjusting things relative to each other so that it just looks harmonious. There's always that final intuitive element that moves things around. So that if, this is why I'm always suspicious of the of very precise measurements used on single paintings that say, oh, the artist used this, when I know as an artist that they're not that precise in the way they do them. So, yeah. To come back to your answer with the colour, I don't know, but quite possibly is the answer. Yeah. We have an email question coming in from... Uh Front Royal Virginia. This is my wife. <laughs> now she did put a comma in her question, which is a uh, breaks my rule, but I will allow it this one time. Uh-huh. And as I as I read the question, you'll know why I married her. Um, is there a need for a repromulgation of a universal language of imagery? Or can modern artists still communicate effectively through sacred art to a modern man who does not necessarily understand a more classical artistic language? Okay. Um, the, I think this is something that's worth thinking about. The, 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 the symbolism, if you like, um, is supposed to elucidate, clarify, communicate. So those things which are... The answer is, I think, yes... But I would start with those things which are, are rooted in, a, in a, an intuitive appreciation. The halo, for example, speaks just in the image of light shining out of a person. Um, if the image is just, just an arbitrary symbol and is not even rooted in truth, then 
I think it's probably not. So one of those might be, for example, and this always caused difficulties with traditionalists, the pelican, which is a symbol of the Eucharist because it was believed to correspond to a scientific truth that I think it fed its young from its breast or something like that, or its own blood. Now, that, that isn't true. And we don't want... To, they thought that it clarified something based upon what was commonly believed to be true. We don't think that anymore... So I'd say, if, if, as long as that, if that symbol isn't widely known, it, we shouldn't be trying to re-establish it, because it, it just makes us a laughingstock, actually. Um, which is what Augustine said. He said, we, we don't go against what people, people commonly believe to be true, because they'll never believe anything we say, or in, in that nature. So, Thank you very much, Professor. Okay. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.